is now six o'clock. Welcome to WRT's local news for Tuesday, January 30th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. In tonight's news, the Wisconsin Assembly is slated to consider a bipartisan bill that would require political ads to disclose any AI-generated content. The search for Madison's next school superintendent has narrowed to three finalists. A local nonprofit that facilitates collaborative land and food programs is shifting one of its projects. And in the second half, we take a closer look at the Habitat Restoration Funding. A DNR official shares their perspective on the Pelican River Forest. And we learn how birds survive the cold winter months. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Today, Governor Tony Evers rejected a last-minute bid by lawmakers to draw new state legislative district maps. The governor's veto was expected to come after the map proposals flew through the Republican-controlled legislature in a 24-hour period last week. Top Republicans have maintained that the maps are not all that different from the governor's own map proposals, but they did tweak the maps to protect Republican lawmakers from facing off against each other in other district map proposals. In his veto, Vito Evers said these maps were just another attempt at more gerrymandering from the legislature. The veto leaves the fight over political boundaries before the liberal-leaning Wisconsin Supreme Court, which ruled last month that the current maps are unconstitutional. Six new maps that were submitted as part of the lawsuit are being reviewed by redistricting experts hired by the court. Those consultants must produce a report to the court by this Thursday. Meanwhile, Governor Evers says an effort by a Democratic presidential hopeful's attempt to get on the primary ballot is, quote, ridiculous. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips is hoping to join President Joe Biden on the Democratic primary ballot. The decision to place presidential candidates on the ballot is up to a bipartisan state selection committee. Earlier this month, that committee decided not to place Phillips on the ballot. Now he's bringing the case to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the State Elections Commission. The state Supreme Court ordered the Wisconsin Elections Commission and the Presidential Preference Selection Committee to respond to Phillips by tomorrow afternoon. If his attempt is rejected, Phillips could gather signatures to still gain access to the ballot. A Calumet County judge affirmed today that the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources can require permits from factory farms, reports the AP. The case brought this summer by two groups that represent large-scale factory farms challenged whether the DNR could impose rules for managing pollution generated by those farms. Today's decision maintains state regulator standards for concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. State law defines CAFOs as housing what are classified as 1,000 or more animal units in one place. Wisconsin has more than 300 CAFOs, according to DNR data from last year. And Wisconsin counties like Manitowoc, Brown, Kewanee, and Fond du Lac have struggled with maintaining water that's safe to drink due to a high number of nearby CAFOs. According to a 2008 report by the U.S. Government Accountability Office, just one CAFO can produce as much raw sewage as the entire city of Philadelphia. According to another report by the National Association of Local Boards of Health, CAFO manure contains pathogens like E. coli, growth hormones, antibiotics, and other chemicals. It also includes animal blood and copper sulfate used in foot baths for cows. Today's decision allows environmental regulators to continue to require CAFOs to monitor groundwater pollution, have a plan for managing manure, and limit their livestock. Restaurants serving maple syrup would need to read their ingredients list a little more closely under a truth and advertising bill in the Wisconsin legislature. 
Under the bill, anything less than 100% pure maple syrup would need to be called something else, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Wisconsin is the fourth largest producer of maple syrup in the country, behind Vermont, New York, and Maine. Our state produces about 300,000 gallons of syrup a year, according to a UW-Madison extension report. The bill received a public hearing in the state assembly last week. A corollary bill in the state senate was introduced three months ago, but hasn't gotten a hearing. Construction on a four-story housing project on Madison's west side is three-quarters of the way done, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. But after a Dane County judge ruled that the project is in violation of city parking ordinances, it's unclear whether work can continue. The case was brought by a group of residents who challenged a city council decision to approve the project in 2022. The residents contend that the council erred in approving the project amidst several alleged zoning violations with the project. At least one of those alleged violations found favor with a judge in a ruling on Friday. City Attorney Mike Haas tells the Wisconsin State Journal that city staff haven't yet determined whether construction can continue following this ruling. The deadline for filing paperwork to appear on the ballot this spring has come and gone. No one has submitted paperwork to run for a municipal judgeship in Monona this spring, leaving it up to a possible write-in candidacy, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Any Monona resident could get the gig if they end up with the most write-in votes on April 2nd. State law doesn't require municipal judges to have a law degree, and the race could be decided by even a single vote. If nobody gets the votes or the winner doesn't want the job, the Monona City Council can appoint the next municipal judge. And while we're talking about elections, the City of Madison's clerk's office wants you to know that absentee ballots for people who have requested them are in the mail. Now these ballots are for the spring primary, which is coming up in just a few weeks on February 20th. Most Madison residents won't have a spring primary. The city clerk's office has sent just over 550 ballots for this primary. You can see what, if anything, is on your ballot for the spring primary by heading to My Vote Wisconsin. You can also request your absentee ballot for the spring election in April. That's at myvote.wi.gov. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. The Eiffel Tower on fire, explicit images of pop stars, U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin holding a gun. Artificially generated content is looking more and more realistic every day. But a bill that's currently before the Wisconsin legislature could help voters distinguish between fact and fiction. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the details on this bipartisan proposal. A bill that would require disclosures when political ads use artificial intelligence is inching closer to becoming law. Today, an amended version of the bill in the state assembly passed through committee, sending the legislation to the entire floor. Meanwhile, a companion bill in the state senate is lingering in committee. Under the bill, political ads wouldn't be banned from using artificial intelligence, or AI. But any artificially generated audio or video used in a political ad would need to include a disclaimer. Radio ads would require two disclaimers, at the beginning and the end. Representative Clinton Anderson, a Democrat from Beloit, is one of the authors of the bill. He says the bill is a preemptive effort against disinformation, deepfakes, and everything else made possible by AI. We've seen more and more ads across the country use artificial intelligence, and we thought it might be best to head this off before it becomes a problem because this presidential election, no matter who you support, it's probably going to get nasty and get very negative. So we want to make sure that people know what things are real and what things are not. Under the bill, a failure to disclose AI-generated content 
would come with a fine of up to a thousand bucks. The state's ethics commission would be in charge of monitoring ads for violations and would need to hire two additional full-time staff to do so, costing an estimated $230,000 a year. At a committee hearing earlier this month, speakers recommended several amendments to the bill. Brandon Scholes is a lobbyist for the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association, which represents the interests of terrestrial radio and television broadcasters in the state, including WORT. Scholes pointed out that the bill would not require the disclaimers to specify what exactly had been artificially generated within an ad. And he recommended that the bill exempt commercial broadcasters who are already subject to other federal regulations when it comes to political advertising. Representative Anderson says they decided not to amend the bill to require more specific disclaimers, saying it would place an undue burden on advertisers. But they did amend some of the language in the bill to clarify that broadcasters aren't liable. Representative Lee Snodgrass, a Democrat from Appleton, is a co-author of the bill. She says that while the Senate companion bill is still in committee, there's a good chance it will progress just as smoothly. The fact that this had strong bipartisan support in the assembly and really no controversy behind it, I think it has a better chance of advancing in the Senate than some of the other bills. Five other states have already passed legislation regulating AI. California, Texas, Michigan, Washington, and Minnesota. Some even ban AI-generated content in political ads altogether. But Representative Anderson says he thinks that's too risky to attempt in a presidential election year. If it got struck down in October of 2024, that could leave a huge uh, hole in what happens in the next couple weeks before the election. So we wanted to make sure we had something on the books that was fair, that would at least provide the disclaimer so people knew what was real and what was not. Politics isn't the only place where lawmakers are grappling to adjust with a new world of artificial intelligence. Last year, the governor created a task force to study the effect of AI on Wisconsin's workforce. And several other states are working to ban, or have already banned, non-consensual AI-generated explicit photos. Like the recently generated explicit, but fake, photos of Taylor Swift circulating on the social media platform X. Representative Snodgrass says the technology is moving so quickly, it's difficult for legislators to keep up. But I think the bottom line is, is that we want to make sure that people aren't misrepresented, aren't falsely represented, and their reputations aren't tarnished by something that is, you know, just factually not true. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The Madison Metropolitan School District is nearing the end of its search for a new superintendent. The district has narrowed the search down to three finalists who will continue the interview process this month. WORT reporter Lila Grubb has a story. Former MMSD Superintendent Carlton Jenkins announced his retirement this time of year in 2023. The search for his replacement has been a main priority for the Madison Board of Education and district leadership. The nationwide search for the next superintendent netted nearly 60 applicants. Yesterday, district officials announced that they've narrowed down their list to three finalists. The first is Madison native Joe Gothard, who currently serves as the superintendent for St. Paul Public Schools. Last fall, he was named the Minnesota Superintendent of the Year by the Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Each candidate is featured in a video on the district's website where they're asked five questions submitted by the community. In this video, Gothard says he's excited for the chance to lead the district that shaped him. I am a born and raised product of Madison, Wisconsin. I grew up on the east side and attended LVM Elementary, Senate Middle School, LaFound High School before having an 18-year career in Madison before I left for the state of Minnesota in 2013. The second candidate, Yvonne Stokes, also hails from the Midwest. 
She resigned last year from her position as superintendent of Hamilton Southeastern Schools in Indiana amidst what the Capital Times reports as divisive politics at school board meetings. She was the first black superintendent of that district and holds a PhD in educational leadership from Purdue University. In her video, Stokes says dismantling structural and systemic inequities is her key priority. I am attracted to the Madison Metropolitan School District because of the school board, district staff, and community leaders are invested in developing supports to reduce the effects of structural and systemic inequities that negatively impact students. The third candidate is Mohammed Shodari. He's held several administrative positions, including the Chief of Strategy, Talent and Innovation Officer for the San Antonio Independent School District in Texas, and a similar position for Dallas Public Schools. Most recently, Shodari served as the Maryland State Superintendent of Schools from 2021 to 2023, where he headed an administration that prompted an investigation by the Washington Post. In that investigation, reporters interviewed over 50 people who cited concerns about Shodari's management style, from fostering a toxic work environment to late work and missed deadlines. Shodari rejected many of these allegations. In his interview for the Madison School Community, he told viewers he'd want to build a system where every student has an opportunity to excel. What excites me most about the Madison Metropolitan School District is the opportunity to create a school system that stands as a beacon of excellence and innovation. No zip code in Madison should dictate the life trajectory of our students. The interview panels include teachers and staff, school and district leaders, parents and caregivers, students and community members. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Lila Grubb. Last week, local nonprofit Rooted Wisconsin announced they're discontinuing their paid produce subscription service at Troy Farm. But Rooted still has plans for the farm as the group focuses on community engagement and other existing programs. Nicholas Leet is a technical producer for WRT News on our Monday show. He's also the Community Gardens Network Director at Rooted. He shared some insight with our news producer, Faye Parks, earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Nicholas. Thanks for having me. So before we jump in, can you tell us a bit about Troy Farm and Rooted in general? So Troy Farm, it's a farm on the north side of Madison, about six acres on a larger property that's about 20 acres, which is dedicated to open space and community food production. And it's a part of Rooted. My personal sort of work is in community gardens, so sort of smaller scale projects smaller scale plots where people can grow their own food, as well as some larger quarter acre, half acre, one acre plots that people rent for market or family production. And then other parts of Rooted are education projects. We manage the Badger Rock Neighborhood Center, do a lot of workshops and education out of there. We do the Madison School Farm, as well as the Troy Kids Garden, again, up at the Troy site. But yeah, our goals are collaborations rooted in food, land, and learning. So we have a lot of different projects. We're working mostly in the Dane County area, getting people sort of the resources they need to learn about food, to learn about agriculture, as well as to get involved in those things. So last week, the Cap Times reported that the Community Supported Agriculture Program, or CSA, at Troy Farm is shutting down. What are the main barriers to the program? So just to clarify, the paid portion of our CSA is shutting down. So 
we will still have a worker share portion of the CSA. So a CSA is a, an acronym for a subscription-based vegetable service where people get a box of vegetables each week or an amount of money to purchase whatever vegetables they want each week. And so we will still be doing our worker shares so people can come volunteer four hours a week and then get again, sort of a box for a household each week, because we feel that that's an important part of our mission. It's a useful part of what we've been doing and what we want to keep doing. The main reason why we're taking a break on the paid portion is it is a large part of our farm labor. So about three quarters of what our staff produced last year went to the paid shares, one quarter went to the worker shares. And so we are refocusing our staff time in order to spend more time thinking about our organization's mission, more community needs, and sort of the easiest way to do that to refocus our staff time is to not do the paid CSA this year. The Cap Times also pointed to the increasing number of farmers markets throughout the county, Mm -hmm. essentially. Do you think that was a contributing factor? I mean, I think that market economics are complicated, and I don't know that increasing farmers' markets decreased the amount that people were paying for CSAs. I think that there are different ways people are getting their vegetables, and so it's more that the price that people are able to pay for a CSA, the price that like is standard for food, makes it difficult for a farmer to make a living wage. And that was a little bit of a challenge for the Troy farm. And it's generally a challenge in farming. Farmers of every type have a hard time paying themselves, paying their workers a living wage at the prices that they're getting. So I don't want to say farmer's market caused this. I think that generally the price of food, where farmers try to make their food affordable for the people buying it, doesn't balance well with the amount that farmers are being compensated, or doesn't balance well with the amount of work that needs to go in to produce that food, whether it's from a CSA, whether it's from a market. I think that's a challenge for farming generally. I think another thing going on was as a nonprofit, we were able to support some of our time working on making food affordable people through various government support grants, people with low incomes. And there was sort of a flux of that during COVID and that's declined since then. And so we aren't as much able to subsidize our production of food from those grants. And again, I think this is a general problem that SNAP benefits are going down, food transfers are more strapped right now. And so there's just sort of a limiting, a, a decrease of the funds to support this work. There are a lot of other CSAs. And so because we're having a budget issue and because we're thinking about our mission in general, we don't need to be another farm competing with those other people trying to make a living. You also mentioned that Rooted is sort of taking a look at its wider goals. Can you sort of preview what those might be? So looking at like our long-term goals of the farm as a space, looking at our founding ideas, it was to preserve an open green space, a community space, an agricultural space. And so, yeah, those wider goals are a place where people can grow food for themselves, where people can get food. And so, yes, it won't be a market farm staffed by our nonprofit this year. You know, it might be in the future. But the Troy Farm property as a whole, there's still going to be a community garden on the south side of the property along the road. And then, as I mentioned, there's going to be the worker share CSAs. And then the last few years, actually, on the Troy Farm site, we've In addition to the CSA run by our staff, there's been other collaborators growing at a larger scale at Troy Farm. 
farm her greens, trade routes, youth empowerment initiatives run by Seikido, uh, the Akibia Madison Farms, a community composting project. And that covered about 2.75 acres. So groups not run by our staff. It was farming not done by our staff, but sort of supported by our Troy Farm staff. That's, I think, one thing that we're going to be focusing on more is just seeing how we can support those other collaborators that are growing at a large scale at Troy Farm, doing their own projects. Oh, and we're also starting a Southeast Asian seedling project sort of started that last year and then we'll be ramping that up this year. That actually I'll be involved in a little bit. So I guess that's what we're going to be doing in terms of farming and then that community outreach, you know, talking to people, looking at our mission, looking at our goals for the site and looking at the community desires for this open green space, what people in the community want, how people in the community want to use the land, how people in the community want to get vegetables, get food, get products from the land, whether they're immediate users or not. I think a lot of different ways of listening to and hearing from the community. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I I would like to add that beyond the worker shares, we are going to be as sort of part of our community outreach and as well as part of our just general farm production. We are going to be bringing food to Northside community centers and doing markets there, free markets there, both as, you know, directly bringing foods to people as well also having that as a way to do that community outreach. And then I think less Troy Farm and more Rooted's work generally in the same way that we're working to make Troy Farm more of a space where different collaborators can come and grow food. We are also looking at ways to make more land available for people generally. There's a farm on the Anderson Park community farm down in Oregon where we're adding 13 acres of growing space for a mix of market and subsistence growers. People are interested in that. They could reach out to me at nicholas at rootedwi.org. We're working on continuing to maintain a piece of land we're renting from the McFarland School District in, in McFarland to a group of Hmong farmers. And so I think a lot of what we're doing is trying to make the land available for people to grow things according to their goals, according to their projects. Not instead of, but just in addition to the other work we're doing directly growing, that we're just trying to make a space available for people. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Nicholas. Yeah, thanks for calling. That was WRT's own Nicholas Lee discussing Rooted Wisconsin's plans for Troy Farm. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every year in Wisconsin, over 700,000 residents purchase a license to hunt or fish through the state's Department of Natural Resources website. Wisconsinites may also register their recreational vehicles, or maybe they'll do more than one. When paying these fees, they have an opportunity to contribute to a fund that supports habitat restoration projects on public land in the state. WRT reporter Katherine Garvins brings us more about how this works. Many of us who grew up in Wisconsin were raised with the tradition of the fall deer or turkey hunt, or spent summers fishing along the banks of cold water streams. I have memories of going to the local shoe and gun store to buy my fishing license. These days, hunters and anglers do this through a website. While there, users can choose to give to the Cherish Wisconsin Outdoors Fund. I wanted to learn more about this fund and the work it supports. 
I started by speaking with Anne Rice. She's the public land specialist with the Bureau of Wildlife Management at the DNR. Cherish Wisconsin Outdoors Fund is a partnership between the Natural Resources Foundation of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. And it was made possible by a legislative act in 2012 and relies on the generous donations by citizens across the state and beyond. This fund protects, restores, and improves habitat for Wisconsin's plants and animals. So it provides an opportunity for the public to invest in the public lands and waters where they recreate. Wisconsinites are stepping up. Uh, At least in the last two years, donations have increased. So uh, during the last full license year, which runs a little bit into February of 2023, approximately $345,000 was donated by 80,708 unique contributors. And then this year so far, uh, to date when we pulled the data, approximately $360,000 had been donated to the Cherish Fund. In 2023, 53% of those donations came from hunters, and 35% were given by anglers. Other donations may be made by state residents who use the system to register recreational vehicles. Like boats and uh, ATVs, that type of vehicle. So you need to get your ATV sort of a certification through the DNR as well. Um, So those are the types of vehicle registrations people would um, purchase through Go Wild. And really, you need to create an account. And um, a lot of people like like me, for example, who don't have an ATV or a boat and don't hunt or fish, um, wouldn't necessarily even need to use Go Wild. But if you're going to buy any type of product like a hunting license or those registrations, then Go Wild is the place to create your account. Anne says that donations to the fund can also be made independent of the Go Wild system. Yeah, so actually even on our uh, DNR website, you can search for Cherish and uh, you'll be able to get to uh, the link to donate from uh, the website there. But you can also go to wisconservation.org. So it sounds like Wisconsin, but it ends with a W-I-S-C-O-N. S-E-R-V-A-T-I-O-N dot org slash cherish. So that's just a great place where you can go and you can donate any amount. Um, A lot of our contributions off the Go Wild site is maybe uh, an average of $4 per user. But, you know, my birthday last year, I think I donated $50 just because (laughs) I want to support the habitat management on our DNR managed lands as well. And uh, so people can donate whatever amount they're comfortable with. The Cherish Wisconsin Outdoors Fund has supported 10 different projects in 10 counties since 2017. It has already impacted 4,000 acres of DNR-managed lands and a mile and a half of stream. As the fund grows, more funding is available to property managers to create wildlife habitat and recreational opportunities for everyone. Yeah, so there were three projects. This is the first year that we were able to fund three projects uh, with the Cherish distribution, they call it. So annually, there's a distribution. NRF manages the the funds um, and distributes based on a calculation that they make and that's able to sustain the fund growing over time. And um, this year, we were able to fund projects in Jefferson, Portage, and Sauk counties. And in Jefferson, uh, the work is going to go towards restoration at the Waterloo Wildlife Area and the Embedded State Natural Area. And then in Portage County, 
They will be working on grassland restoration for prairie chickens at both the Leola and uh, Buena Vista wildlife areas. And then Sauk County, they have quite a suite of properties that they plan on using their funds to uh, do some um, oak savanna restoration. The funds granted in Sauk County will support work to improve these habitats in the Baraboo Hills, including Devil's Lake State Park, the Lower Wisconsin Riverway, and Natural Bridge State Park. To learn more about the boots on the ground work being supported by the Cherish Wisconsin Outdoors Fund, I spoke with Bridget Rathman. She's the Southwest Regional Habitat Biologist with the State Natural Areas Program and is leading the habitat restoration effort for the Baraboo Hills projects. The Baraboo Hills are incredibly important. Um, as we know, their geology is really unique. We have that that quartzite, which is super old um, rock that has been weathered by the glaciers. Um, and because of that unique topography, we have a ton of different types of plant communities, which makes it really exciting. The Baraboo Hills is home to one of the largest contiguous blocks of oak habitat remaining in North America and has provided critical food and habitat for several game and rare or endangered plants and animals for thousands of years. Bridget says there's already 30,000 acres of land protected there. Which is huge. So that's a mix of the Nature Conservancy, Sauk County, DNR owned, and Baraboo Range Preservation Association. And within that 30,000 acres, because of that unique topography, um, we have a lot of different types of ecosystems. So we have prairies, oak woods, oak savannas, um, which is going to help make it really resilient to climate change, especially. So as things get hotter or drier, plants can kind of move up or down and um, or around different slopes. So all the work that we're doing is going to hopefully set us up for many hundreds of years to come. This will include work on South Bluff at Devil's Lake. Wisconsin's most visited state park. So South Bluff is a really huge chunk of oak woods, many thousands of acres. And our oak woods are in trouble right now. So many of our oak trees are 100 years plus, and we know they usually stop producing acorns around 200 years. Um, And because of European colonization, removing native people from the landscapes, we've lost prescribed fire. And we've lost widespread wildfires um, because of habitat fragmentation. And oak trees love fire, so they have really thick bark and even their leaves. Um, I like to think of them as like a nice crumpled newspaper that you would start a campfire with, whereas maples, for example, are like a wet magazine. So um, oaks love fire, and for many thousands of years, they outcompeted other tree species with those frequent fires. So since we have had fire gone from the landscape, a lot of those maples and other trees have grown up and young oaks have suffered. So we know that we have old oaks, we have no young oaks, and what we need to do is we need to take out some of those other tree species and allow the young oaks to flourish and to return fire to the landscape, and that's exactly what we'll be doing at South Bluff. Bridget says that once they take out some of that overstory and get more light onto the forest floor, there's great evidence that the oaks will propagate naturally. And then especially once we return fire to the landscape, we see the oaks really thrive. But if we need to, we will be able to plant trees in the future. Work on the Lower Wisconsin Riverway is taking place at Ferry Bluff. I think we hear a lot about oak savannas and oak woods, and if you want to see prime one, go to Ferry Bluff. Um, Ferry Bluff also has a glade community up top, so that's a really special, globally imperiled prairie ecosystem, and they exist only on very shallow soils. So the Baraboo Hills has one of the greatest opportunities to promote glade opportunities. Um, East Bluff is another one of those examples. 
So at Ferry Bluff, a lot of the work will be focused on expanding our burn unit. We've been burning there for decades, which is why it looks so awesome and super biodiverse with tons of wildflowers. Um, so we'll be expanding that, and then we're also controlling buckthorn and other invasive species. The third area of focus for the Baraboo Hills project is Natural Bridge State Park. Bridget says that historically, there hasn't been a lot of conservation work done there. And that's a really perfect example to go out and you'll see if you look up, even if you don't know your tree species, you'll see some trees with huge sprawling branches. These are the branches of mature oaks. And then you'll notice all the smaller trees, maybe like the size of your thigh in width, um, they're all very skinny maple trees usually. So that's a good place to see where we have these huge legacy oaks, but no young oaks coming up. Right now, they're working to thin the invasive trees and set up a burn unit. Because fire is the, the critical factor here. Um, and just yesterday we were out there clearing some cedar trees from one of those really rare bedrock glades. And an exciting thing there, they actually found 11 different bumblebee species last year. So um, the work that we're doing on the glade will help that a lot. And then there's also some very degraded brome fields that have very low flower diversity. So we're going to intercede those with a pollinator friendly mix so we can help out those bumblebees to increase in number. She adds that it's important to note that we are at a unique point in time to do something about the degradation of our important native habitat like oak savanna, oak woods, and bedrock glade. If we wait 50 years, we could lose a lot of those seed producing oak trees and maybe our grandkids don't have oak forests. And oak forests are important because they provide habitat to way more, like a huge number of species. One example, oaks in the Midwest provide a home to 400 different species of moths and butterfly larvae, which is way more than any other native tree species. And then also we think about all those acorns in the fall, that's food for our squirrel friends, turkeys, deer. Um, and so it just has cascading effects. If we look at insect diversity, um, then that leads to better bird diversity. There are 135 species of breeding birds in the Baraboo Hills. So if we lose those oaks, we're gonna, we're gonna miss a lot of those bird species as well. And there's only 2% of oak savannas remaining in Wisconsin. Especially Natural Bridge with those big sprawling oaks. Once we can get in there and clear out some of those um, very shady trees and get fire in there, we're, we're gonna help boost those numbers and protect anything remaining that we have left. To find out more about the Baraboo Hills Project, the work at the Waterloo Wildlife Area and Prairie, or projects at the Leola and Buena Vista Wildlife Areas, please visit wisconservation.org cherish. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Katherine Garvins. Meanwhile, Governor Tony Evers surprised both the state legislature and many Wisconsinites last week when he announced that the U.S. Forest Service's Forest Legacy Grant Program would fund the largest conservation purchase in state history. The conservation easements on 55,000 acres of the Pelican River Forest in Oneida County bypasses earlier opposition from legislative Republicans. For more about what that means, WORT host Brian Standing spoke yesterday with Jim Lemke, real estate section chief for the Wisconsin DNR. Now, the DNR purchased a conservation easement on the property, which means that the the base ownership of the property remains the same. Is that intended to remain in the hands of the conservation fund, or might that be transferred to somebody else at some point? Uh, most likely, that'll be transferred to somebody else. That'll be a decision the conservation fund makes. Uh, the conservation fund's mission is really to bridge 
uh, private business and opportunities in the state of Wisconsin with conservation. So I would assume that down the road at some point, they'll look for a new owner of this land that's interested in those timber revenues, which will stay with the landowner. So I'm, I'm assuming that that will eventually be the long-term owner of this land. And what rights did the DNR actually purchase with this particular easement? Yeah, another great question, of course. Uh, The main thing that the state is purchasing is public access rights. And with those public access rights come vehicular use of this property. So not only do we have the rights to be able to, as the public, uh, enjoy these, these acres, we also have the rights as the public to be able to drive vehicles on 62 miles worth of designated roads. In fact, the conservation fund has set aside a million dollars in an endowment fund to ensure the long-term maintenance of those roads. But again, uh, Brian, these these gates on this property uh, with previous owners have been closed to public use and vehicular use for, for decades. And so this is the first opportunity uh, with this conservation fund and this easement, those, those gates are open that people can drive on this property and they can access some of these uh, portions of the land that haven't been used or seen in years. So that would be the other uh, right, I think, uh, for for the public, uh, not only to use and walk on this property, but also to drive vehicles on it, including ATV, UTV use on designated trails and snowmobile use, which is something that is an extreme benefit Uh, We work very closely as the landowner did with Oneida County to ensure ATV, UTV access and snowmobile, big portion of the recreational economies in Northern Wisconsin. We worked uh, specifically with them to outline those trails that can open up finally a north-south corridor on this property for the use of the public. So that was a very exciting uh, opportunity that the DNR was proud to be a part of as well. What about the ecological management of the property? Are there uh, any restrictions on in terms of timber management or habitat management or um, how it's going to be used and accessible for wildlife? Yeah, uh, that's a great question as well. So management responsibilities fall primarily and will remain with the landowner. But the DNR, through the use of the easement and through restrictions on the easement, has oversight on not only timber production, but it has oversight on a number of other areas, uh, including uh, development property uh, properties out there on the Pelican River. Uh, those are limited uh, to just those uh, natural recreational uses. So there can be no development, there can be no mining, for example, on this particular uh, 70,000 acres. So that protects that environment as well. And so the DNR in partnership with the landowner, right now the conservation fund does have oversight on the management and the protection of these uh, acres now, Brian, into perpetuity. That was Jim Lemke, real estate section chief for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Have you ever looked out at your bird feeder in the depths of winter, wondering how those tiny birds are able to survive such cold temperatures? Well, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg has. And tonight on this archival edition of Wildlife Weekly, she looks at all the ways birds stay warm over the winter. to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today I wanna to talk about birds and their strategies for keeping warm in the winter. Ah, there are so many different strategies that different bird species have to be able to really thermoregulate during this time of year. And living in Wisconsin in a cold weather climate, I thought, you know, it is the middle of winter. I really wanna know the answers to some of this information. And I know some things about birds and we have to really pay attention to those factors in rehabilitation because our efforts are actually done both inside and outside this time of year. So as rehabilitators, we're working with a lot of different species. We're working with them indoors in nice temperature regulation, heating, cooling, HVAC systems where that animal is going to be able to recover and stabilize from whatever condition they're coming in with. But then we have to start thinking, how do we precondition that bird, getting them outside in the middle of winter? And what about releasing them in the middle of winter? And all these other things that we have to like decide back and forth, what's going to be the best thing for this animal? I like to start by talking about feathers and feather quality because that is probably one of the most crucial survival you know, items a bird needs to have, right? Feathers are literally what makes a bird, pretty much. When we're saying that that feather condition has to be really good quality in rehabilitation, we're doing everything that we can to try to reduce feather damage, abrasions, breakage, anything that would cause their feathers to be of poor quality, including nutrition. So when we have birds in captivity, they're in small enclosures while they recover indoors, but when they're outside, they're in flight enclosures, which could be, you know, maybe it's a 12 foot long cage, a 15 foot long cage. Raptors, we're thinking, you know, a 50 foot flight pen. Those enclosures are not normal for the animal, right? They're here in temporary cages, trying to get back to full conditioning for release. Because if we're rehabilitating them in the summer and into the fall, we know that most of your, especially songbirds, but you know, raptors as well, they're gonna go through their basic molts and that's in preparation for migration. You know, every bird's molt strategy is very different. Raptors might only molt a couple of different feathers at a time every year, but your songbird species are gonna go through a whole covert feather molt, which would be like the outside part of the wing. There's a lot of different timing differences, types of feather differences. The key is in the fall, prior to migration period, they really have to have those nice fresh set of feathers that have molted in to be able to help them with insulation. The feathers closest to the body are those little soft downy feathers, which are really great for being loose barbed and they trap air and allow that air to stay insulated. But they really need the fresh feather layer on the outside that is nice and you know of good quality, interlocked really nicely to be able to trap that air underneath. That is something that is super important for a lot of our species if they're going to be moving in and out of different colder climates. We also know that some birds strategize different in the way that they hold their feathers. And by that, I kind of mean more like their positioning. If you don't know or haven't seen it, birds can definitely move their feathers. They might raise a crown in defense, for example. I think of ruby crown kinglets or something, if they get defensive and angry or as a territorial response. In cold weather, what about the floofing up? Have you ever seen a bird puff up and be in this little ball? Believe it or not, balling up into a spherical posture is actually an advantageous thing for birds to help reduce heat. Uh, the surface area of the animal and where that heat is, it's, it's usually lost by some sort of conduction or radiation. And it's really, most people think, oh, it's just a constant thing, but not really. You minimize that surface area by balling up and therefore you're gonna have less heat lost. Apparently this sphere, the circle, is the best one for surface area in relation to volume when you're a tiny little bird. 
So those birds will puff up into a ball. They will also do things like uh, shivering or shaking. So that movement is going to add your extra heat and warmth. And they will also even drop their metabolic rate into like a really interesting, not really like a hibernation for birds, but just, uh, just the way that they're able to just drop their production in general and balance the heat loss. That's That way they'll have a minimal rate of metabolic heat production versus times where energy, if it's in like, if there's not a lot, they can control how much their metabolic heat production is. So changing that up or down depending on the temperature. So we have their their core temperature needing to be very stable. They shake, shiver, puff up. They might also have ways to huddle with each other. So some species of birds are going to be very large flocking birds, like penguins, for example. And a lot of people, I think, know that penguins huddle together in large masses so that they can help keep each other warm. But, you know, like the red poles, which do come into Wisconsin, they're, again, large flocking birds where that flock of individuals helps to then keep each other warm. Or they're going to find really dense vegetation vegetation to huddle and hide into. So that way, again, the wind, especially the freezing wind chill here in Wisconsin, maybe they're going to be more protected in those, you know, evergreen trees, for example. So that really helps a lot. So they've got, you know, physical differences depending on what species they are, because obviously a songbird is a lot different than a seabird who's going to get wet. You know, that's a whole nother story if we're talking about their strategies, because they've got lots of other fat layers and stuff. But we've got the differences in the thickness of the feathers, the types of feathers, that are uh, replaced, the fluffing up, the spherical shape that they get into, just so many really cool strategies that they're using to survive in this time period. Speaking of that, that's actually a kind of a neat fact. Did you know that it's about 25% of their feather quality or changes, there's a change in their feather quality during this time period? So when they molt in the fall, the feathers that do get replaced, they actually might increase the total number of feathers by about 25% or more. And that helps them then even further than just like being able to have fresh feathers that that extra impact of having 25% more feathers then keeps them even more insulated in the winter. So how neat is that to know as a strategy that you're just going to say, oh, I want more feathers this time around of year. (laughs) That's really cool. How does their brain know that? It's very fascinating. But then another thing to probably mention is that the fat storage is just absolutely crucial for these animals. Um, And this is, I would say, for any species, we're talking birds or mammals that are living in cold climates. But the fat storage really helps them to be able to get through those periods of time where there's not a lot of food availability. And so the fat is there for times where you might have, you know, a week's worth of really awful weather. And if they're not able to forage or do anything, you know, they're definitely going to be using those fat stores so that, you know, they can make it through to the February timeframe, March timeframe, as they are starting to then move back into more temperate climates. So fat storage, absolutely crucial. And so they're actually starting that process in like August before the migration period happens. But we do have to worry about the birds that can't leave on migration that are sick or injured or that have problems. So they've lost feathers and now their skin is exposed. You know, those are the the birds that we're working with most during the winter time here in our state and be on the lookout for those. And any that can't get enough food to survive through the winter, they're gonna be probably at your feeders, looking for food, looking for water, maybe not looking very well. Those are the birds to look out for right now. So if you find any birds in those conditions, or if you find a species that you're like, ooh, that's not a cold loving bird, that bird should have already migrated, you know, pelicans or something. Those birds you should probably keep an eye on and maybe call your local rehabilitator for some assistance, advice, or help. Because those are the birds that probably do need the help this time of year. So give us a call if you ever find those species. Our phone number is 608 
287-3235. And this has uh, been Wildlife Weekly, talking about some cold weather strategies that birds use, uh, especially in Wisconsin and some of the Arctic climates. Thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6. Your reporter was Lila Grubb. WRT News Director Shelley Pittman wrote your headlines tonight. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Catherine Garvins, and Brian Standing. Ken Brady engineered the show. And Faye Parks is the news producer at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you might follow your favorite podcasters. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish Language News with Anoisha Patio. Good night.